The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, March the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones and our EU correspondent Naomi O'Leary. Naomi, I'm going to go to you a little bit later about the latest from uh, from Brussels about what's happening about vaccine exports and blocking them and all that kind of stuff, which is a work in progress, I think, as we speak uh, this morning. But Jack, I want to go to you first because we're really in a, we're approaching another tipping point or benchmark or whatever you want to call it because the government is going to have to come out pretty soon and say what's going to happen on April the 5th in relation to the current level five lockdown restrictions and what changes or any it's going to come through. Are we doomed to a week now of the kind of leaks and whispers that we've had running up to these decisions in the past? Yes, short answer is yes. And there is a sense of kind of once more into the breach about this because... How many times now have we gone up this hill of either loosening or tightening restrictions? And you're right, it's it's now a well-worn path of leaks and briefs and suggestions and counter-briefs and, and, and whisper, whispering, as, as, as you know. I think that, that this, this particular juncture is novel in some ways, though, because, um, because the signals that we're getting from the performance of the disease aren't really clear. It's... It's clear that we made significant gains after Christmas. We are in a much better place in terms of the amount of case cases that are being diagnosed every day, the pressure on the hospital system and so on and so forth. But it's also clear that notwithstanding a much longer, much more intense lockdown than I think we've previously experienced during the pandemic, we've stalled. And we've stalled in a way that I think is is more fundamentally troubling uh, and more fundamentally undermining of the government's new post-Christmas strategy than I think people really get. Uh, let me expand on that a little bit. So prior to Christmas, we had this framework of going being, being somewhere between level one and level five. I would suggest that after Christmas with the new Path Ahead document, to a greater extent than people realise, we actually nearly fully ditched that. I mean, the idea that Ireland would move wholesale shifts from level three to four to five and then maybe back down to three again was effectively abandoned. And it was done so fairly tacitly because I don't think they wanted to, to obviously throw the five level thing out the window because that would have been a political embarrassment. But what it was replaced with was this sense that we would be in a tight lockdown for a very long time and then we would incrementally take baby steps and move out of it and measure as we go and assess the impact and hope that the impact wasn't that bad and then take another step and repeat the process all the way through while simultaneously vaccinating to a point where we could be at something that approximated maybe, you know, level three and, and moving towards level two into, into the autumn. Now, the problem is, as it stands, with cases very much stalled um, and with the indicators quite bad at the moment in terms of the leading edge stuff around referrals from GPs, positivity rates and so on and so forth, with that stalled, it would suggest that the very first substantial step on that process that we took, reopening the schools, perhaps combined with a lack of or with some slippage on compliance, indicates that that, that process, that framework 
isn't really fit for purpose. And that leaves the government in a dilemma. Do they pause now? Do they effectively do nothing on April 5th and hope that we're able to grind the numbers down some more and resume momentum? Or do they accept, and this is what ministers are saying to me, and they are using the word dilemma, do they accept maybe that this is as low as cases can go? And do they proceed with some form of, of reopening, partially in cognizance of the fact that they are, you know, to a degree losing the dressing room? And in proceeding with that, some form of reopening, hope against hope that numbers stay down or at least flat and don't and, and that they don't lose control of them again because I don't think we're at a stage where vaccination gives us sufficient popula- population level uh, protection where we, we where we could be confident of a large increase in disease not also having a big increase in hospitalizations and deaths even though that picture may vary somewhat with the protection of nursing homes and, and very very much older people. And what's your read on the balance of probabilities in terms of that political discussion that's going on right now? If I had to hang my hat on something, uh, you know, at, at 10 days or so out, I would say that we would probably get some form of um, relaxation of the 5k limit. I wouldn't imagine it would be overly dramatic. I would say 8 or 10k. Uh, I, I think that the performance of the disease at the moment wouldn't favour going to a county level relaxation. Um, I would say that construction is very much in the balance. Um, but again, if I had to take a point on it, I would say that we probably get some kind of uh, phased reopening of construction and I think that we will get an increase in outdoor activity so there will be changes but they will be small and they will be around the edges I mean none of that I think unless you're working in construction is kind of fundamentally going to change your day-to-day experience of the pandemic you know I mean if you're exercising 4k or 6k from your home does it really make that much of a difference and um, perhaps if you can meet up with more people outside that make may make a more substantial difference but like the the real big lifestyle things like going to people's houses and 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 non-essential retail or outdoor eating i think that's still very much some ways off and and very much shrouded in doubt as to as to when and if it'll come back this summer what about the whole idea of a of the government presenting a bigger picture apart from anything else just as a way of showing people that there's a path out of this thing because there is a path out of this thing we know that it that it exists it is the vaccines um michael mcdool has a column in the irish times today uh, and he writes i'm going to quote this if the vaccine rollout gathers pace as intended uh, at what point does the social and economic life of the country for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated open up to an appreciable degree and you know we know that you know if the vaccine rollout goes according to plan close to three quarters of the adult population will have had the opportunity to be vaccinated by the end of June. And uh, interestingly, the Danish government this week announced a rollout based upon its vaccine programme, which essentially says that by by June, Denmark plans to have most of its society reopened, albeit with certain much more minimal restrictions in place. Wouldn't it really help politically here for some version of that to, to be rolled out here too? I saw that Danish thing as well, and I thought it was very interesting uh, yesterday when it broke, because for a lot of reasons, Ireland gets compared to, to Denmark in that we're, you know, a relatively rich EU country. We have a we have a relatively kind of similar uh, size of population and we kind of draw other other comparisons between the two countries. And, and I thought it was noteworthy that Denmark had actually gone out and said, OK, from I think it's April 11th or something like that, we're going to start doing this. And then because we're going to have so many people vaccinated by the end of uh, June, we can start doing that. And as you correctly say, Hugh, that's that's an approach that the government has really steered clear of here. And I think they've steered clear of it for a few reasons. Partially, there's kind of, you know, good public health reasons for not doing it 
you know, they don't want to trigger anticipatory behavior as you run up to one of these one of these days and they don't want to create the sense that there's like these set in stone um, red letter days when you can all of a sudden kind of start doing things that you hadn't been able to do. And um, I think that that approach is is it's good enough for as long as you have the broad support of the population. And I think that they had the broad support of the population after Christmas, so long as this kind of post-Christmas consensus existed between, you know, public health people, government and and the population. And and there was a broad support for that. I think that's starting to weaken, though. And I think that people will, will want to see a more concrete approach to when we can expect to have a life that resembles something approaching normality you know the problem is that all those other reasons i outlined they still exist although those are the good reasons for not doing it it's just that the politics don't really support inaction on that that front anymore and also most importantly the vaccination program wouldn't seem to wouldn't wouldn't seem to support that so far as well i mean we 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 start to see real and tangible benefits of vaccination emerging in the likes of Israel and we all know this there's no point in relitigating it and um, but i don't think that the government would be in favour or minded to to wage ahead with some kind of well signposted route out of this in the absence of a confidence that we're going to get the vaccine supplies coming through that enable them to, to, to offer that kind of protective vaccine shield. Because if they forge ahead in the absence of that, and if there's a big upswing in disease and death and, 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 and hospitalisation, I mean, they made that error at Christmas. Uh, they had they had a bit of cover because nobody knew that B one one seven was stalking us that UK variant. But you know if they make that mistake again, and if there's a serious if there's a serious public health and 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 private tragedy consequence arising from it, I think the political consequences of that will be absolutely enormous. And 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 I, I think it's questionable as to whether the government could survive such a misstep if it did if it did result in 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 proper high levels of of human uh, pain arising from it. I suppose I'd distinguish a little bit between the two questions which we've discussed here. One is the immediate question of what it's appropriate to do on April the 5th, given the current level of community transmission in the country and the current very low level of of vaccinations. And the other one is, you know, what is the medium term, um, the medium term roadmap and what are the risks of spelling out a medium term roadmap, which is linked to to the rollout of the vaccine. And I do wonder, you know, many people have said over the last few months, uh, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, that the country is essentially being run by uh, Neffet um, as opposed to the government. And there is sometimes in these issues a sense that the, the medical establishment doesn't trust the people to take on board the, the information and the consequences of the information. And so that there's a level of caution about how much we should flag the actions that should be taken as a result of the vaccination. Well, just to be clear what I'm talking about, I think Professor Sam McConkie was on News Talk this morning. He was talking to Michael McDowell and he was essentially pushing back against the Danish plan on the basis that it would be the wrong thing to do because there is still a level of mortality among the under 50s um, and because also of, he cited, long covid and the question is, are we going to keep a lockdown going for those much lower mortality numbers and for long COVID? Because um, that wasn't the deal we signed up for, I don't think. I think the fear is that um, if you open up once you vaccinate the people who have been at most risk of, of, of serious illness or dying on the basis that you will then eliminate serious illness or dying. It, it it turns on a few things, and and this is the public health perspective on it. It it turns on the presumption that 
if the disease then runs wild for want of a better reason or if we just get much higher levels of community uh, transmission and much li- higher levels of 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 cases and um, that that won't translate into uh, an equal load or a substantial load on the hospital system and 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 the nervousness i think around that is the fact that that is effectively an untested proposition because we've always been experiencing covid through a through a a, a frame where there has been substantial uh, restrictions on day-to-day life you know so we know how COVID behaves in the population when things are restricted we don't really know how it behaves when it doesn't so we don't know for example I mean if we were to get 10,000 cases a day just to pick a number at random and you know 8,000 of them were amongst the younger people we could be fairly sure that the 2,000 in older cohorts might not translate into serious illness and death amongst that 2,000 but we don't really know how how big or small a percentage of that that large group of younger people who are getting affected, how sick they might get. So you might, I think the fear is that you might get actually the long tail of reopening would look a lot like the first phase. It would just be potentially younger people in hospital uh, and younger people dying from it. And I think that's what may stay the hand. Um, And in terms of, you know, can people be trusted? um, I think, I think that it's, it's a thorny one because you always want to believe in, in, in kind of people's, better angels and their capacity to to restrain themselves but i mean look look what happened at christmas you know um there was widespread socializing and uh, that mixed with the b117 variant to get us where we are at the moment you know um and and i think that the 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 virality of the of the b117 variant is really important here as well because if you give that version of covid an inch it will take a mile and it takes only a very small number of, of interactions where it's allowed to spread for it then to be pushed into households and spread into those households as well. So it's, it, it's, a, really, it's a really complex picture. And I think that um, there are kind of good reasons for caution. And these are the reasons for caution that will be articulated to government, even as vaccination proceeds so like even as particularly vulnerable cohorts get vaccinated there will be people saying in the public health establishment hold your horses this isn't the be all and end all perhaps it might be more prudent to hold back and uh and 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 wait a couple more weeks or a couple more months until we have substantial population level protection as opposed to just vulnerable cohort level protection Naomi, if if I could bring you in here, you've been waiting uh, very patiently. Before we go to discussing sort of the high-end EU politics and what's happening at commission level uh, around vaccines, Jack mentions the B117 variant there, and it has clearly played quite a large part in the surge in COVID that we've seen, particularly across Central Europe. And also, I think, in Germany, new measures announced by Angela Merkel for a, a clampdown over the over the Easter period. And I think a surge in Belgium as well. Is that right? Yeah, um, particularly over towards the east. Um, so countries like uh, Czech Republic, Hungary being hit pretty hard. Germany is very concerned um, apparently, the hospitalisation rate and the rate of people in intensive care are rising at a quicker rate than we've seen ever before in Germany. And also, the people in hospital are not that old. So, for example, in the University Hospital of Dusseldorf, um, I heard this morning, um, the average age of a person in intensive care is 56. 
Um, so there's concern that, um, the, well, the World Health Organization has said that the so-called British variant or the variant that first emerged in Britain is now becoming the dominant strain in Europe. And we did see that it could contribute to massive spikes um, like in Ireland. Um, but there's also uh, evidence that's suggesting it, it is also causing more severe disease. Uh, so a number of countries have chosen then to extend uh, restrictions they had in place, uh, which is obviously, you know, causing domestic difficulties because there's a lot of frustration. Um, other countries are considering whether to to extend or put in new restrictions to try and curb what looks like a new wave of infections across the continent. Are they experiencing what we experienced immediately after Christmas? Ireland's wave was obviously particularly dramatic and it was a combination of sort of unique factors with everybody um, suddenly increasing their contacts because of, you know, the the seasonal um, sort of traditions of the time, also meeting indoors because of the weather and the combination with this new variant is an additional factor. Um, it's not, we're not seeing those, those, that, that dramatic spike, I don't think it's been seen as far as I, I can see anywhere else in the world, actually, the extent of the, how, how dramatic that the increase was in Ireland. Um, but Definitely, it's something that is concerning uh, national governments and it's difficult for them because it's coming at a time when uh, people were hoping that they could look forward to an easing of restrictions in many cases uh, because of a combination of uh, the vaccinations coming in. And also, we remember that last summer, things did get easier uh, that time towards the summer. And so people were hoping that that would happen uh, again this time. Uh, but it's... It, it's it, so it's putting governments in quite a difficult position regarding restrictions everywhere. For example, in Germany, just kind of it's interesting to see that there are similar kind of public debates going on across different member states. In Germany, the current um, popular focus is the the idea of people going to Mallorca on holidays. This is sort of uh, this this idea that is, is driving people mad because. It, technically, you could fly to Mallorca, you could go on holiday there from Germany, um, even though people in Spain couldn't because there's domestic tourism restrictions there. And there's also restrictions in Germany. So you couldn't go on a beach holiday the other side of the country in Germany, for example. Um, it's one of these quirks. Um, and it's something that, you know, the, the government is under immense pressure to deal with. I think we've seen exactly the same kind of absurdities here as well with with, with restrictions on internal travel, but people still being ultimately free to, 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 to travel to places outside the country. I mean, I do, do wonder, I mean, where you live and work, the sort of restrictions that you currently experience, how do they compare with the with our lockdown in relation to commercial activities, shops that are open, schools, businesses, what people can do, restaurants, bars, food, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, well, something that is more unusual to Ireland is the five kilometre restrictions. And my interpretation of that is that it must be to do with a way of restricting people from making voluntary visits because if you're relying on someone for a care function, I think the assumption is that they you would be within a 5K uh, or so um, area. And if not, then it's it's more of a voluntary visit. That That's that's my interpretation of it, though. Other countries haven't gone for that same thing. But then again, you know, they've, they've in some cases gone for more strict restrictions. So the, the restrictions that Italy is looking f uh, towards at Easter and what France means by a lockdown as well is that you literally stay in your house. So you can't leave your house except for an essential reason like to go to the grocery store. And yes, you can be stopped by police and you'll have to display a paper an attestation that tells, you know, that declares what you're up to and where you're going. 
Um, so obviously there are different uh, mixes in different member states and it's down to a mix of of the particular circumstances in countries and the different sort of political priorities or the balance of interests uh, with some countries being closer, quicker to close schools um, than others and so on. In general, restaurants are out. Um, I, would, I think that um, that kind of definitely indoor dining is 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 something that is not the norm um, in across Europe at the moment. But you know, again, it depends where you are. Um, and essential stores can also be interpreted differently. Um, so um, it, obviously, everywhere has supermarkets open, but essential stores for in different places can also mean things like clothes shops. It, it kind of it's different from place to place. Well, let's look at the the bigger or the the higher politics question, which the key one this week seems to be around the um, control over the import and export of vaccines out of the European Union. Um, you wrote today's page one lead on the Irish Times, which is about, which basically says there's a showdown coming with the United Kingdom over there's a specific stockpile of AstraZeneca vaccines, um, quite a lot of them, about 30 million or so. And what's going to happen to them and our import or export controls going to be imposed? This is a sort of rolling news story. I gather there maybe have been some briefings this morning on it. Where does it all stand? So the European Commission is shaping up to announce proposals to tighten their controls over exports. And the reason for this is because the European Union has kind of been left alone in the world to carry the burden of exporting vaccines anywhere because um, major producers, particularly the United States, have a ban on exports and are not going to export until their own citizens are vaccinated. Uh, so the EU then has been exporting and it introduced a measure of control back at the beginning of February by which companies had to declare um, if they were going to be sending exports to a list of certain countries. It didn't include developing countries, uh, but it did include places like the UK um, and Canada and Australia. And uh, of the 381, I think it was, um, requests for export, only one was refused, and that was a shipment from Italy to Australia of 250 million doses. And the upshot of that is that we know that about 41 million doses were exported out of the EU uh, to those countries where potentially they could be refused, the largest chunk of them to the UK, so about 10 million doses to the UK. And there's massive pressure now um, for... Because AstraZeneca's shortfall has been so dramatic in Europe, they've only they're only on course to to deliver 30 million out of what had been anticipated to be more like 100 million doses before the end of March. Um, there, and, and with the UK's vaccine success so visible at the moment, there's massive domestic pressure for tougher action. Um, so the Commission is going to tighten um, or extend the sort of reasoning um, that you can use to refuse an export permit. One of the reasons is you can consider whether it's proportional. Proportional means are we somewhere that's having more deaths each day than the place where these vaccines are going to go? And that could be a re reason to reject it. Um, it'll also take away the sort of exemption that there were for countries like Switzerland and Israel. They weren't, uh, exports to them didn't previously need to be declared, but from now on they will. And also the key one is reciprocity. So is that country also exporting to us? So in the case of the UK, the EU has made approaches to try and get them to share the uh, production for, of AstraZeneca vaccines from their factories. But the UK says its contracts, you know, stipulate that 
the UK's citizens will be vaccinated first and so they're not going to share any with the EU and there's no exports going from the UK uh, of vaccines to the EU. So then that could also be a reason to refuse exports. So in the context of this then, it's emerged that there's a stockpile of AstraZeneca doses that have been produced in a Dutch plant and that are going to Italy to be finished And what we're seeing is that claims that this stockpile could amount to as much as 30 million doses at this point in a plant outside Rome in Frosinone by an AstraZeneca contractor. It's not a plant of AstraZeneca. It's a third party which will later be finishing vaccines for Johnson & Johnson. So sometimes it works for one company, sometimes it works for another. So now focus is turning to the fate of these vaccines. If If they do indeed amount to 30 million, it's extremely significant because that is the same as the entire amount that AstraZeneca has delivered to the EU so far. Um, There was a lot of speculation that AstraZeneca was holding off on on submitting export permits or requests in the expectation that they would lapse, that the EU would let them lapse at the end of March um, and then they would be able to go ahead with those exports. Um, But now they're actually going to tighten them so now we don't know where this these these excess doses are going to go. That's the big question now. Do they go to fulfill EU doses or EU orders? Uh, do they go to the UK? Some of them, I understand, are actually COVAX doses. So those are the um, like global cooperation to get vaccines to developing countries. Um, so probably not all of them would be uh, kind of claimed by the EU. But the point, I think, of what the EU is doing right now in terms of saying you're going to have to declare and we're going to consider all of this and we're, we're strengthening this. This is all with the aim of strong arming AstraZeneca into fulfilling its orders without the mechanism actually having to be used. I think that's the, the sort of the, the aim of the outcome. But it's obviously extremely uh, sensitive in the context of uh, what is anyway quite a delicate post-Brexit rivalry between the UK and the EU. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, clearly it would seem that the rational um, thing for everybody to do in this circumstance is to avoid some kind of disastrous trade war of some sort over over vaccines and to come to some some compromise where everybody gets gets something. But politics does feed into this, doesn't it? And the the, the post-Brexit febrile situation means that maybe the rational decision is not what ends up being taken. Yeah, the best outcome for everyone is if global trade was open everywhere. Um, And that would be the EU's first instinct. And I think that's why they only began putting in sort of controls or even checking what what experts were going where at the beginning of February, um, because that wasn't their sort of first option. But they do feel like they, they, this has not worked out for them because other countries have restricted exports through one way or another in the US by restricting them and in or, or banning them and in the UK by organising priority delivery um, for their citizens, um, which means, um, according to a figure that I got from an MEP this morning, that the UK has actually received more doses from the EU in the last uh, little while than Spain has, which kind of is, you know, it's been described by... Um, the the chairman of the European People's Party, Manfred Weber, as you know, this a serious pro- credibility problem for the European Union. Um, you know that if if citizens think that it's better to you know you can have a better outcome by being outside the European Union, then that's a big problem. So they need to act, and there's a lot of political pressure to do whatever it takes to get those doses and to meet that 
goal of summer, the summertime vaccination goal, um, which was set out at the outset. How much of this is down to the shortcomings of the EU's procurement process last year? And how much of it is down to the pretty disastrous performance by AstraZeneca in meeting its commitments? There's a combination. There were flaws in the procurement process. One of the main problems was that not all European Union countries were convinced about these mRNA jabs. So those are the Pfizer and Moderna jabs. They're more expensive than AstraZeneca, and they're also a little bit tricky to roll out because they need to be frozen at such a deep, deep temperature. That makes it tricky. I mean, just for example, Greece has lots of little islands and getting frozen vaccines onto all of these little islands, it's just not practical. Other countries have less financial resources. So um, countries drag their feet, you know, um, whereas Germany, Denmark were kind of raring to go to buy up as much Pfizer as possible. All of this was like summer last year. You know, we're talking about August last year. It's not something that just happened or anything. It's sort of been in the works and it's difficult to fix immediately. You know, all of this stuff sort of happened last year. Um Germany, Denmark and some other countries were raring to go to buy as much as possible, but it was difficult to get other states on board. Ultimately, the compromise that was arrived at, um, this whole thing caused a bit of a delay. And the compromise that was arrived at was that countries didn't have to take up their allocation. So they weren't forced to buy them if they didn't want to. So some countries did indeed turn down mRNA jabs and instead relied on AstraZeneca. Um, and that, um, and, and then other countries bought up excess, including Ireland. Ireland got a bit of the extra that was uh, that was left over, um, and uh, and so did a couple of other countries, particularly you know Denmark and Germany, as we were saying. Um, and then the situation that you've got now is that those countries that really put a big bet on AstraZeneca are in dire straits because AstraZeneca has overpromised and underdelivered to such a dramatic extent. Um, with just, you know, a quarter of what was promised in the first three months and also set for very steep shortfalls in the second quarter as well. If you're a country that is relying on AstraZeneca and didn't go for your mRNA jobs, that puts you in a really difficult position. So that's why you're seeing in, in places like Bulgaria and Croatia, they only have about um, five and a hundred uh, jobs given out to about five and a hundred uh, people there. And that's like far, far below countries which manage to buy extra like Malta, which is kind of creeping up on the UK at about 30 jobs per 100. So this is causing conflict within the EU as well now. Austria um, and the Vienna government have led a charge saying that this is unreasonable and now we have to share doses because we can't leave those countries behind. But there's really limited sympathy because that was a decision of their governments um, to to choose not to buy those mRNA jabs. And there is a, a serious sort of blame game going around with national governments, obviously kind of embarrassed if they didn't make the right decisions in terms of what mm-hmm. vaccines to buy um, and, you know, trying to give the commission a kicking. You've laid out very well there, I think, some of the complexities of the situation in the EU with the different competencies and responsibilities of, of the EU itself um, and of of national governments. But there does seem to me to be a, I mean, perhaps to some extent unfair, more simplistic picture, which a lot of people will have in their heads and which the EU has to contend with, which is that when this system was was announced last year, there was the the, the implication was that the EU as a as a massive block would be able to source the best possible deal for its citizens, and that you wouldn't get the kind of the big countries stomping on smaller countries situation that Ireland as a smaller country might fear. 
But now we find ourselves in a situation where we are all well, well behind two countries which um, we were all told to hold in some uh, some disdain over the last while. Our two political leaders, Donald Trump's warp speed seems to have delivered. Uh, Boris Johnson seems to have delivered too. And we're um, hanging on in the, in, the, in the slipstream of the two of them, which doesn't look good or feel good, does it? And above all, Benjamin Netanyahu as well, we have to add to the list. Um, so, yeah, certainly, um, I mean, the it has served their... They, those countries have um, done well. Um, so there's a number of reasons for each, kind of for the, the success of each. Um, in the case of Israel, if you are looking for a, a number of, of vaccines of the order that's enough to cover their population, it is more feasible to get them short term than if you're looking for enough vaccines to cover 450 million people, which is the case of the EU, because manufacturing is limited just at the beginning. Um, and also Israel um, signed a deal to essentially kind of be a big, huge trial for um, Pfizer and submit data to kind of see how it went. And that worked out really well for them. Um, and then with the UK, obviously, a, a key element was that they went for emergency approval. Um, rather than the more rigorous and slower European Medicines Agency approval. So um, the emergency use approval is something that all national governments technically have the power to do through their own regulators. So it's something, you know, Ireland could have done. But it does mean that you accept liability if something goes wrong, um, rather than the pharmaceutical company. Um, But that allowed the UK to get a head start um, on on getting the doses. And it seems to have endeared them <laughs> um, to the pharmaceutical companies uh, as well. And they seem to have um, in their, you know, have stronger commitments for the from the pharmaceutical companies in terms of delivery. Um, so definitely the EU has come out worse um, in terms of that. And also, as I was saying, this the this the kind of open trade approach that the EU has taken has disadvantaged it and it's also disadvantaged it in terms of political communication because there's a perception that the EU is the the kind of the aggressor in terms of export bans because the debate is being had now in public and it's contentious with different member states having different uh, views on it. And so it's this sort of political communications disaster where even though it's actually the EU that is the world's leading supply of vaccine exports, it seems like it's the meanie who's holding them back because they're talking about now restricting them, whereas the US has had its export ban in place uh, since the Trump administration. Um, so it, yeah, um, it's it's definitely, you can see massive communication failures um, and um also, it was like far from a flawless um, procurement process. I think that's, you know, that's clear to everyone. Yeah. And all of that leaves the Irish government, Jack, in a place that no government, I think, would would want to be uh, with. It doesn't really have any control in any significant way over how many vaccines are going to arrive when in the country. So it doesn't have agency in in that respect. It's facing the sort of Hobson's choice uh, in terms of what happens on April 5th, which you which you described earlier. It's, uh, I'm looking at Pat Leahy's uh, Irish Times Politics Digest this morning, his email digest, and he, he talks about the mandatory quarantine which is being brought in and kind of describes, basically says that people in government see that as a political fig leaf rather than anything that's a meaningful contribution. I was reading Jennifer O'Connell's column a few days ago when she talked about Micheál Martin's 
Eeyore-ish, you know, I know isn't a terrible approach to everything. Something further, it seems to me, must be done, which is, <laughs> I suppose, channeling the traditional Irish Times editorial. But it's just not satisfactory. It, it sort of feels like some some grip needs to be got on this whole thing. Yes, but it's very hard to to know exactly how they go about doing that. I mean, if you take, for example, just one of the many dilemmas that's facing them at the moment, which is what do they do about European vaccine bans? Um, the numbers that Naomi are talking about, uh, I just got the calculator right there. If it is 30 million in the uh, in the, the factory in the Netherlands uh, that should be exported from Italy, I mean, notwithstanding everything she said about COVAX and so on and so forth, just if you simply extrapolate that out, it would mean 330,000 doses for Ireland. Um, that's a little more than four weeks supply based on current run rates. But more importantly, it's about two and a half of the very vulnerable cohorts that we're currently vaccinating. So, you know, you can see how there would be like a real imperative there to be part of any kind of land grab on vaccines. Um, but against that, you know, the government will have to will have to balance uh, some other competing uh, dynamics, namely um, that there's a large farmer, farmer lobby here. They employ a lot of people, they pay a lot of corporation tax and that gets them a seat at the table when it comes to issues like this. But also some sincere supply chain concerns around the sustainability of vaccine manufacture going forward. And if that were to slide into some kind of protracted uh, trade war, could it have an impact not only on the AstraZeneca stuff, but but on the the Moderna and Pfizer doses that have become quite um, important and quite quite reliable as well to the Irish vaccine rollout. Um, and then there's a kind of historic stance in an Irish industrial policy, which is in favour of of open borders and open movement of of goods and people and so on and so forth. So this would kind of run contrary to that. So the point the point I'm making is that if you look at that one narrow example, there are there are pushing political reasons in order to do one thing, but also longer term strategic reasons not to do it. And I think that that goes to the core of a lot of the issues that government is facing at the moment. There's a short term political percentage in making promises. There's a long term massive political risk in breaking them and and making them in the knowledge that there's a reasonable chance at least that you could end up breaking them is bad politics. And that goes to the that goes to the very heart of the dilemma they're facing at the moment. There are no good options. We are very much in the realm in the realm of least worst. But even that least worst option I don't think is readily apparent. So I I don't envy them. I mean it's it's really difficult in the next ten days. Um and the consequences for not getting it right will be will be pretty massive, I would think. Naomi, you wanted to come in on that? Yeah, just to point out what Jack is saying there about there not being good options. There are limits to what national governments can actually do, the action the action available to them in these circumstances. So if we just briefly take the example of Canada, for example, Canada bought the most amount of vaccines for its population in the world. They spent an enormous amount. They bought an enormous amount. And they bought early. They bought a similar time to all of the other rich countries. And they're doing really, really badly. Um, they're, be- they're significantly behind Ireland. I think less than half of the doses have been given out in Canada as Ireland. It's on, they're on about 6.8 doses per 100 people. 
um, compared to, I think it's something around 15 in Ireland, but you probably have the more uh, updated data on that. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, the reason why that is, is primarily because the United States is not exporting to them. They recently released some doses, but prior to that, Canada had been relying on doses from the EU. Um, so it shows that, you know, even if the, the government were to sort of take some dramatic action, if it was to do something sort of like go and try and get Sputnik vaccines from Russia, which you can do, which, some, you know, kind of governments are sovereign to try and do or to, or, or to, or to China the entire world is in a scramble for these doses and none of them can be got easily there's prices for all of them <laughs> you know geopolitical prices in the case of the chinese or russian vaccines um so i think it is it is worth bearing in mind that the um the the, the broader context there and that while it is difficult to it, it, it while we're doing badly um if when we look next door to the uk we're doing much much better than the most of the world and the the target that the government has of vaccinating more or less 80% of adults by the end of june is kind of astonishing like if that is if that is achievable and if and it is according to the current delivery forecasts that we have from the pharmaceutical companies like notwithstanding that they're provisional um that that is what the the companies currently say if that is achievable that is really astonishing and that will put us in a massively privileged position in terms of a global context. I think that's an absolutely excellent point to end on. And I think you're you're completely right about that. And we sometimes lose sight of that bigger and for us anyway, in this part of the world, more positive picture, which is which is really just around the corner. And I uh, I think we should leave it on that positive note because we, we do that so, so rarely. Uh, so I'll, I'll thank Jack and Naomi for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back in your, your feed pretty soon. But until then, remember that you can always mail us with your thoughts at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. So until the next time, thanks very much for listening.